Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you happening across our broadcast for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And that's where you come in. It's your Bible questions that make up the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So we are looking forward to hearing from you with any question you have on your heart or your mind. Our standard for the questions we answer, pretty simple. Just make sure it's a sincere question. And if you're looking for an answer, straight from the Bible, maybe about a Bible verse or two that's eluded your understanding, maybe how to apply these scriptures in the current uh, challenges you're facing in life, uh, how to answer objections that uh, skeptics and non-believers have to the Christian faith, or maybe a uh, look ahead uh, through the uh, lens of biblical prophecy. We are all over it, and uh, we want to meet you right where you're at. So uh, feel free to jump on in with those questions. We'll take them live uh, right now and on the air. Uh, joined by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, how can people get those questions to us? Well, if you want to join us on our live stream, calvarychristianfellowship.com is our website. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to either a countdown or the stream of the broadcast face-to-face. On the right-hand side of the screen, you can send us your questions. And on the bottom of the screen, we have our email address spelled out for you, questions for hope at gmail.com, which you can take advantage of at any time if it's to send us sincere Bible questions. Note those are the only requirements. They are sincere. They're about the Bible, and they're in the form of a question. We won't uh, give you a Jeopardy penalization, but we'll try to ask you, make it easier for us to find the question within the comment. Note as well, if you want to join us on YouTube, uh, Reason for Hope is that page, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like or subscribe to us there, you'll be able to not only join us live as we are, uh, I guess, doing that, but as well, you'll be notified when we're going live on those social media platforms. And as we always take the time to inform you of, if we are taken down, from these platforms. For reasons beyond our control, note that our website is still going to be live. If there's a technical malfunction, we'll let you know. But if not, we are uh, censored for whatever reason, and I think I can name two, we will still be able to have you join us on our website and, of course, on our radio affiliates. Note that our email address will be the primary way we'll be receiving your questions, and if we don't get to your question by the end of the broadcast, send it to us there as well. It'll help us keep uh, track of the things that we have yet to talk about and uh, hopefully be able to even give you more details if you desire. Well, with that being said, note, questionsforhope at gmail.com, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That will, of course, be our website where you can click on the Watch Live tab. Our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Noting the ways you can connect to us, we also want to make sure the Lord is involved in this process, at least as the main participant. Yeah. So why don't we invite him to be a part of it and see uh, what's said. 
Yep. Lord, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to worship you during this time. And that's what we want to do. Ascribe to you the worth that you deserve and to treat your word, uh, not as man's word about you, but your word to us. Lord, we ask for the filling and anointing of your spirit that we would be able to uh, answer questions, uh, not uh, offering our takes or our two cents worth, but simply allowing your word to speak simply and directly to the hearts of your people. Thank you, Lord, that you're far more anxious to teach us and shepherd us and guide us and give us clarity in these crazy times than we are even in receiving that guidance. So give us open hearts. We pray your word would go forth in power and conviction in accuracy. Uh, according to your good, acceptable, and perfect will. Bless your children and shepherd them during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, to start us off, uh, follow up on Justin's question yesterday regarding what is the long version of why God uses evil for his glory and why did God create evil. This is also uh, joined with the idea of, well, if you know God created Satan knowing that he'd become Satan, why would he do that? Well, I don't know what more we can add to what was said. Said, but maybe you can th- throw in your, uh, I guess, three scriptures worth when uh, Peter and I have spoken our piece on the matter. Well, I think you guys covered uh, the issue very, very well. And uh, really what it kind of comes down to is this. I-, I thought it was interesting how you guys pointed out that when someone makes the objection, okay, if God really is loving and kind, uh, why doesn't he do away with evil? Uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a bestseller uh, called uh, Why Good, why bad things happen to good people. And his theory, uh, you guys discussed a bit of this, was that God would dearly love to eliminate evil in this world, but he's just not powerful enough to do it. He'd love to do it, but he just doesn't have what it takes to do such a thing. And so uh, the God of uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner uh, becomes, uh, I guess, uh, exonerated. Uh, because of a sense of powerlessness. Well, the problem with theories like this is that they have to line up with what the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms about who God is. Uh, The Bible says that God is all-powerful. There is nothing too difficult for him, including dealing with evil as, uh, as he sees fit. The Bible also tells us that God is just, that he cannot uh, look with favor upon evil. In the book of Habakkuk, we are told this. Uh, he is always going to do the right thing. In fact, in heaven someday, in uh, Revelation chapter 15, there's going to be a song sung that just and marvelous are God's ways, true and righteous are his judgments. And, and so we find ourselves kind of back to square one as far as the uh, atheists and skeptics objection uh, in all of this. Okay, if God is just, uh, he would want to deal with evil. If he's all powerful, he could deal with evil. Why doesn't he deal with evil? Well, as you guys pointed out, and I'll just kind of give it the condensed version, and people want to follow up on this, they certainly can in the questions and comments. It just reminds me of uh, that uh, classic line from the movie Gladiator Not yet. Uh, the bottom line is God will eliminate all evil in this world. But as uh, the uh, the wonderful traveling evangelist, uh, open-air uh, uh, missionary Cliff Connectly puts it, if God were to eliminate all evil at midnight tonight, how many of us would be around at 12.01 to talk about it? Uh, the bottom line is, what is God up to in this world today? God is up to the business of uh, a rescue mission. I guess the Uh, best analogy I could give to you is that this world is like the Titanic that's hit the iceberg. You know, if a rescue ship 
got to the Titanic, uh, we could say, oh, my goodness, you know, uh, this is a, a danger to shipping. They should probably just fire a few torpedoes into it and be done with it. Uh, no. Uh, what you want to do is you want to get as many people off the Titanic as you possibly can. And that's what God is up to. You know, I, I think the, the definitive uh, statement on all of this, uh, it, it really isn't uh, wrapped in enigma and mystery as like some people would want to, to put it. But uh, there's a really uh, very defining statement as to why we are in the situation we are in in this world where seemingly the wicked get away with it. And it's no minor issue. A guy named Asaph in Psalm 73 said he almost lost his faith over seeing the prosperity of the wicked in this world. But in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, as far as God dealing with uh, evil in this world, we are told, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible makes it very, very clear that uh, the Lord is coming. I love what Psalm 96 says about this. The Lord is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, the peoples with his truth. Uh, God is going to judge, and uh, there is going to come a day where this rescue operation is going to wrap up. But as C.S. Lewis uh, once so eloquently put it, uh, I wonder what those people who ask God to interfere openly in this world, like dealing with evil and uh, maybe zapping someone before they can do some evil deed, will imagine what will happen when God really does reveal himself in this world. Uh, you know, he said, when the author comes on the stage, it, the play is over. Uh, when the Lord shows up, it's the end of the world. Uh, it will not be a time at that point to choose your side. At that moment, it will be a time to discover what side you've chosen. God is holding back to give us that opportunity to decide to join his side. We must take it or leave it. But we also need to remember that uh, the Lord uh, is not going to put that off indefinitely. And one of the things that we are fond of uh, sharing with you on this program is that there are an awful lot of heavenly heads up, signs of the times, particularly Israel back in the land. And we'll give you a bit of a, a prophecy update about what's going on in Israel here in a moment. Uh, but uh, Israel being back in the land, and uh, the reaction of the world to Israel being in the land. And, you know, the focus of uh, what Bible prophecy is all about is God's dealings with the nation of Israel. And, and so we definitely do have an awful lot of data to go upon uh, to let us know that we are definitely in the ballpark, I believe, of Jesus' return. Now, could God postpone his return for 200 years? Sure. Uh, there, there's no reason why he couldn't. But that doesn't really put this issue off for each and every one of us. Because uh, as the great uh, philosopher from the 20th century, Steve Miller, put it, time keeps on ticking, ticking, ticking into the future. And sooner or later, each and every one of us in this world are going to have an appointment to see God face to face. We're either going to have that appointment when we go to him through the avenue of death or... Uh, he's going to come back for us at an event we call the rapture. But either way, each and every human being is going to come face to face with God someday. And the wise person understands this. The wise person realizes that God loves us. And this rescue mission that we've talked about was made possible when he himself entered into uh, human history, when he became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived a completely different life than any of us have ever lived, completely sinless. He took that sinless, perfect life 
and laid it down voluntarily on a cruel Roman cross. The Bible says to pay the price for your sins and my sins, to uh, provide, if you will, a satisfaction of God's love and his judgment at the same time. And so because Jesus has died for us, the Bible tells us that uh, all those who put their faith and their trust in him and what he has done for them can be saved from having to face God at judgment day in their sins. You know, we talked about being saved. Uh, You know, people say, well, saved from what? On judgment day, you're going to understand vividly what you were saved for and saved from. So uh, because Jesus died and rose from the dead, the Bible tells us if anyone uh, uh, confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And so that offer is going out each and every day. Uh, We don't know how much longer this age of grace that we are in is going to go on. The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Uh, It's so important for us to realize that there's a lot of people who say, well, you know, I'll get right, but I'll get right later. Uh, Well, how do you know you have a later? You know, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, because every time you hear a message like this that is telling you, get right with God, call upon his name, just pray and ask him to forgive you, to come into your life, to make you a brand new person. That's why Jesus died and rose from the dead. Every time you hear that message and turn away, your heart gets a little harder, becomes a little bit harder to respond. And, uh, you know, people who think, well, I'll, I'll be able to do that someday. I need to understand something. And you guys talked a little bit about this yesterday as well, to whom much is given, much is required. God will hold us accountable for the truth that we've heard. Now you've heard. You know, what are you going to do with that knowledge? So uh, those would be the only things that I would uh, add to that. And for those listening who perhaps weren't able to join us yesterday, I'll just briefly go over the long answer and form that was given by Peter and I. What my father did was instead of focusing on the problem, he pointed you to the solution. It's a far more productive conversation than how did we get here? It says, how do we get out of here? That's the better conversation. Right. But what we talked about yesterday was an emphasis on three key misunderstandings about this issue. Does God create evil? No. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 29, I believe, uh, Solomon observed that God created man upright, but he has sought after many devices. Our decisions have led to that. So first understand what evil is. It's not something God created. It's something we have done with what he created. And evil really isn't a created thing at all. It's just taking something good and twisting it. It's the absence of God's nature and purposes. So if then that's a proper understanding of what evil is, then we ask, where did it come from? It came from the risk God took in creating something as wonderful as Uh, something that could share a love relationship with him. Now, if we're talking about something with great potential for good, we're also talking about something with a great potential for evil. It depends on the use of it, right? Right. So if I give something good to a good person, it will be used for good purposes. If I give something good to an evil person, it will be used for evil purposes. If the good thing is misused, it doesn't become evil. The person's just demonstrated his nature through that object, and we know noted that free will is something that God valued, not only 
enough to allow the potential and guarantee of evil, given that he was sovereign. He knew that, uh, according to Revelation 13, the lamb that was slain from the foundation right. of the world. Jesus knew the price he'd have to pay for us before he even created us, but he went through it anyway. Why? Because, and this is the third key, we don't have a God who distanced himself from our evil, but willingly subjected himself to the worst manifestation of it in history, which goes into your response. Right. That, again, is the short version, but if you want the long one, listen yesterday, and thank you, Justin, for bringing it up, because it's a very, very small error that ends up creating a lot of big and very, uh, I guess, I, I can't find a word that starts with a B, so I'll just go to a D. Dumb <laughs> conversations. Yeah. So uh, with that said, um, real quick before we go to the prophecy update as well. Actually, you know what? I'm going to put this off as long as I can. What's going on in Israel? Well, uh, we told you on Wednesday uh, about uh, the tragic uh, death of uh, Al Jazeera reporter Shireen Abu Akla, uh, and uh, we told you, hang on to your hats. It looks like uh, there's going to be a big dust up in Israel about all of this. Uh, a couple things we need to understand. You need to understand about this: uh, the shooting of this uh, Al Jazeera reporter that took place in Jenin in Israel uh, happened as a result of Israel responding to uh, armed uh, terrorists uh, essentially setting up shop in Jenin and. Uh, really doing some mayhem. Over 19 uh, Israelis have been killed in the last two months in uh, terror attacks. One of those months was the month of Ramadan. Uh, So uh, the the, the bottom line is uh, there has been an escalation of uh, terror attacks against Israel. I I believe mainly because uh, those who were involved in the war war of attrition, if you will, against Israel are worried that so many people are focusing in on the Ukraine and uh, Russia, the conflict there, that what's going on in the Middle East has uh, been put on the back shelf and that their uh, particular movement is being ignored. So they're obviously turning up the volume down there. Well, during this uh, military exchange, a military raid on Jenin on Wednesday, uh, the veteran Palestinian-American reporter was shot and killed. Uh, Some things coming out about all of this, uh, we really don't know exactly how Shireen Abu Akhle was killed. What we do know is that she was positioned for her reportage uh, behind a uh, Palestinian gun emplacement. Uh, An Israeli armored car came under fire (coughs) from this gun emplacement. And as a result of that, uh, there was fire that had gone back there. The IDF said it's possible that one of the uh, return fire shots could have hit her since she was behind a focus of the IDF's attack. We do not know this at this time. The other possibility is there was wild uh, uncontrolled erratic shooting by the Palestinians, sort of a to whom it may concern sort of approach to uh, dealing with the IDF forces coming in to uh, bring peace into that area. And a- as a result of that, she could have gotten shot by one of these wild shots that went on there. Uh, the big problem that we run into is this, uh, the idea of determining how and who actually killed uh, Shireen Abu Akhle is uh, still up in the air, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, as we mentioned, as a result of this, because uh, Shireen Abu Akhle was a Palestinian-American, by the way, she wasn't a Muslim. Uh, she was Greek Orthodox. 
and her uh, funeral service was held at the Greek Orthodox Church in East Jerusalem. We've seen where that site is on our journeys uh, to Israel. Very and, pointy building. And as a result of this, a huge crowd gathered. Well, you can probably imagine with uh, the tensions running high uh, post-Ramadan and everything that has been going on over there that uh, you've got a potential recipe for a disaster going on. Well, uh, the Palestinians who were carrying her casket uh, began to throw stones and uh, shout at uh, Israeli uh, security forces, the police and the IDF that were there. Uh, The last straw, I guess, is when they began to take out uh, Palestinian flags and begin to fly them in that particular space. Now, that's very, very sensitive, you you need to understand, uh, because by doing that, what they were saying is they were claiming East Jerusalem as their territory once again. Well, that was apparently a bridge too far. And in a move that is uh, going to be evaluated and has uh, drawn criticism from really both sides, uh, the security forces uh, laid into the crowd. Uh, they began to drive the crowd and the individuals throwing rocks and so forth back uh, using billy clubs and uh, tear gas and such. And when you're doing that in a memorial, you got this picture online of Shireen Abu Akhla's coffin being carried and suddenly the police are uh, closing in and billy clubs are being, uh, and, the, and the, the coffin at one point almost fell over. You have got a public relations uh, dream, in a sense, uh, for the Palestinian cause. So see these oppressive Israelis, they can't even leave a uh, solemn moment like uh, a funeral procession alone. And uh, certainly, uh, it is a very, very uh, uh, distressing video, and you, you can certainly watch that online. But uh, the interesting thing is this. Um, as an Arab Christian, Arab Christians are usually minimally, at best, involved with Palestinian politics, and rarely, if ever, in any kind of acts of terror. And so uh, the death of a Palestinian uh, coupled with the uh, extreme police tax tactics that were used at her funeral, I think it's safe to call those extreme at this particular moment, uh, has taken a very difficult situation and made it much, much worse. You've given uh, all of uh, the, uh, the cover, if you will, for terroristic activities uh, that one could ever ask for uh, along this line. And so, uh, you know, the... The tragedy uh, has uh, thrown fuel on an already inflammatory situation. Our good friend Joel Rosenberg's All Israel News uh, provided this analysis of what was going on. Whether it was an Israeli or Palestinian bullet that killed the Al Jazeera reporter will matter little. It seems most people have made up their minds and the scenes broadcast internationally will do Israel no favors. There are calls for social uh, for revenge on social media now, and from here starts the need to thwart the next terror attack. Uh, from Al Jazeera to Gutter to the Palestinian Authority, the blame for her death was laid unilaterally on Israel with the accusation the killing was deliberate, and that was even before an investigation began. Uh, the Jerusalem Post said in an article that Abu Akhla's tragic death was being cynically used to blame Israel, something that will incite others to carry out even more terror attacks against the Jewish state. Uh, The PA has made up its mind about how Abu Akhla was killed and need not be confused by an investigation that could muddle up the narrative. But the Jerusalem Post says reasonable people around the world, however, should ask themselves before jumping to conclusions this crucial question. 
Why are the Palestinians refusing a joint examination? In other words, Israel offered to do a joint autopsy on the uh, not only the reason for death, but the bullet that actually killed Abu Akhla. Uh, in fact, the Palestinians have it in their possession. They will not allow it to be examined. Uh, and uh, the uh, interestingly, we mentioned this beforehand, but the coroner, uh, who was a Palestinian who examined Abu Akhla's body, came out with a conclusion that there was no way to determine which side was responsible for her death based upon the examination of the body and even the bullet. Well, if you are a Palestinian coroner, if there was any conceivable way that you could blame Israel conclusively to this. They would be holding up this bullet right now and using it as a, uh, a, a media prop at this point. The fact that they can't and don't uh, is very, very telling indeed. Now, here's where the real battle comes in, and, and we'll keep this prophecy update uh, confined to this. And if you've got some more questions, obviously we can answer them. But the battle in the Middle East is always for hearts and minds. It's not necessarily one that is fought by bullets and guns. It is uh, a war of words, if you will, an attempt to sway public opinion uh, to either support the Palestinians or to stand with Israel. And uh, both sides, I think, have their work cut out for them, uh, believe it or not. Both sides have made major mistakes in all of this. Uh, Israel should have had better intelligence I think, going in to realize that this kind of a demonstration was going to take place. And uh, rather than the troops on the ground reacting to all of this, there may have been a a wiser course of action, just allowing this procession to go on and then dealing with uh, the political ramifications of it later. Uh, Israel certainly does have to take a look at themselves and ask themselves, can we learn something from this? They seem to have learned some lessons from engaging with the Palestinian terrorists in Gaza. They need to learn how to engage with the Palestinians when these kind of demonstrations go on and turn into a photo op. There's no doubt about it. But here's where the Palestinians have really dropped the ball. Their refusal, not just to allow a joint Israel and Palestinian analysis of what killed uh, Abu Akhla. Uh, Their absolute refusal to do that. They even refused a proposal by our president, uh, Joe Biden, to have the United States serve as an impartial intermediary uh, in the midst of all of this. They absolutely refused that. And as soon as you refuse that, uh, the big question uh, is this. Why uh, are you refusing to do this. Well, President uh, Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority uh, said, we reject the joint investigation with the Israeli occupation authorities because they committed the crime and because we don't trust them. Well, okay, great. Let's bring in an intermediary. Let's bring in uh, the United States. Let's find out exactly what what happened here and what was responsible. The fact that uh, A, their own coroner, was not willing to condemn the IDF right off the bat Very significant. Secondly, the fact that uh, the Palestinians, rather than saying, we've got nothing to hide from, Uh, this was obviously a uh, uh, tragedy, if not a war crime done by the IDF against a uh, defenseless journalist uh, going on here. You know, let's have the truth wear out. They're they're not going to do that. And I think they're not going to do that because they're not going to like the results if it does come out. So the whole thing is going to spin again. What does that say to us? 
Well, what it says to us is uh, even in these days where we have almost unlimited uh, access to media and to, uh, to photos and cell phone pictures and so on, uh, it really kind of comes down to, uh, in an incident like this, spin. Uh, you know, it's not the facts on the ground that are prevailing. It's who the spin meisters uh, are, are doing. And, and right now, uh, there was another article in the Jerusalem Post uh, with a really interesting headline that says, Israel isn't winning the narrative battle on Shireen Abu Akla, but it isn't losing. In other words, it's kind of 50-50 as far as things are concerned. Now, you can go on Twitter or one of those other feeds and see the promoted stories, and it sounds like the whole world's against Israel. Not really so much because of these other issues that are going on. I think the wise thing, as uh, all Israel News put it, is to hold judgment uh, until all the facts come out. But the thing that we've got to understand is, even in our... Uh, you know, you would think uh, with all the media we have today, there would be clarity, there would be certainty on these things. No, there's only spin. And uh, the Bible tells us that one of the things that is going to be characteristic of the last days and the end times is going to be spin is going to prevail. In fact, uh, one of the things the Bible tells us about the Antichrist himself is that he is the ultimate spin Master In Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, we're told the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, notice what the Antichrist is going to trade on. Uh, if you don't love the truth, you just love your side, your, your opinion, your bias, if you will. You are a prime candidate to be deceived by the Antichrist. And, and I think we see a great example of this here. People, in a sense, have already made up their minds about what happened. No, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. And it's all about political spin going on here. So what can we learn from all of this? We've got to be in this book. We really do. We have to evaluate all things from a biblical perspective. And uh, the, a biblical perspective on this isn't to say, oh, Lord, uh, strike those Palestinians with a lightning bolt. Uh, you know, I'm going to get up my favorite imprecatory psalm and claim it against these people. Pray for their salvation. Pray for these people that uh, feel like violence is their, their only recourse in this world. And, you know, how they got into that situation greater political minds than mine can debate. But the fact of the matter is, if you are going out with the idea that uh, the only way you can find salvation is by being a martyr, dying in jihad, you've been utterly deceived. Uh, if you go into a situation where you just go, well, might makes right, and we're just going to go in there and bust some heads because these people have provoked us, hey, reacting instead of responding, never a good thing. Don't be overcome with evil, the scripture says, but overcome evil with good. And that's a lesson I think all of us can take to the bank. Yep. All right. Uh, another question here. This is from Kurt, who wants to know which scripture mentions mercy and peace. Um, just a quick clarification. It's a reference to uh, righteousness and peace, but we'll clarify that more in a minute. Kissing, and what's the significance of that? Thank you. Well, the passage is Psalm 85 and verse right. 10 through 11, but of course, we don't jump into the middle of a passage, a chapter, or even a psalm. Like we own the place, we want to start at the beginning. And the good news is the answer to your question is found in the first three verses. 
Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. And then the sons of Korah go on to ask for restoration to ultimately be completed. Verse 7 in particular, especially for us as Christians, we emphasize this. Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Now, this is where the poetry starts to manifest itself. I'll continue on to verse 8 because it just kind of flows at the point. I'll hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. So restoration, this is from the Babylonian exile in particular, but their restoration is what they are praising God for in the psalm. Then they say, what about it? Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go uh, before him. He shall make his footsteps our pathway. So the point of the whole psalm, and basically being read but all but three verses, is not only historically a thankful I guess, celebration of Israel's restoration from their 70 years in exile. But the practical, the illustrative application is what? That mercy has been shown to us, that God has done right by us, that righteousness has been shown in mercy, that truth and mercy have kissed. Now, generally, when you see two things kissing, the two things are together. That's kind of implied by the kiss. It's a joining in a physical way. Well, since mercy and truth, righteousness, justice, all these things aren't physical things, but concepts, there is a context to the poetry. Both are being shown. Another example would be, for instance, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, where it says that we beheld Jesus, the only, um, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, that isn't to say that Jesus didn't have blood cells and they were actually uh, gray cells and the plasma that they were uh, engulfed in was truth, yeah. not uh, serum. No, obviously, these are aspects of what was demonstrated by him in their entirety. So if we see Israel's restoration, their forgiveness from their sins, we see the same with us. God was not only merciful to us, but true in that mercy. He was not only righteous, he did what was right by us, but gave us peace at the same time. Right. Now, if we were to say, well, I don't deserve righteousness, though I am aware of my sin, at least as far as what the Holy Spirit has given me, and I recognize that I deserve nothing but separation from him. That's the point. We've been not only shown mercy, but God has done right by us in doing so. And that's the point of emphasis. When we look at the cross, what do we see? We see justice. We see the rightful wrath of God against sin, and it was scary. But at the same time, we saw mercy. How do you have justice and mercy at the same time? It doesn't make sense. Well, that's the kind of paradox that God specializes in. He makes a way where there is no way by judging the penalty of sin and offering it to anyone who will offer. Now, is there anything significant in the language, perhaps, that would further this point? Well, I think you covered it. Uh, The the idea is that you're dealing with something that is poetic there. And it's a a beautiful picture of the fact that uh, when God does things, he doesn't do things in a way that emphasizes one of his attributes, the exclusion of the other. He always acts in righteousness and truth, in mercy and in justice at the same time. All right. Um, (coughs) Here's a question I've been holding. 
You know, I'm going to hold it off for one more because you're going to find out why. Uh, Jeffrey wants to know regarding Jonah's prophecy of the destruction of Nineveh in 40 days that didn't happen because the people repented. He's just wondering, what are your thoughts about this and its potential implications? Uh, none whatsoever, Jeffrey. God explained that's his way of doing things. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10, he explicitly lays this out. If I purpose to judge a nation and they relent from the harm or they relent from the sin that would cause that harm, right. I will relent from the harm that I was going to give to them. But if I purpose good for a nation and they go on to do things that invoke my wrath, then I will relent from the good that I promised to do to them. And this of course has Deuteronomy in mind, the promises uh, the, of blessings and the promise of cursings to Israel based on their obedience. So with Nineveh in mind, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, what did we see? Jonah rightly prophesied, in 40 days, as you currently stand, God is going to judge you. And he hoped that that would be the end of it. But unfortunately, God is the kind of God Jonah knew, and that's why he was running in the first place, because he knew, God, you're so full of love and mercy, and just, you're so gracious to people, why did you not judge those people like I wish that you wouldn't do to me? And, of course, hilarity ensues in chapter 4. Jonah is given an illustration of a plant that grows up overnight and dies over a day, basically. Yeah, and and, and anyone who wants to look at this as some kind of unfulfilled prophecy, Uh, or, you know, gosh, I guess God got it wrong, Uh, or he sure set up Jonah, you know, to have this this expectation. Uh, Read the book, Jonah chapter 4, after God uh, relented, he did not bring about the disaster he said he would bring upon them. He did not do it because he's true to his word. He doesn't say, okay, it doesn't matter if you repent, I'm just in the mood to judge you, bam. You know, once again... that would create more problems for us than it would solve. Yeah, and once again, Jeremiah eighteen seven through 10. We're not saying this to cover God's tracks. He's put it in fine print. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting how Jonah even knew that. In yeah. Jonah 4, in verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Why? Well, Jonah was a prophet to the northern ten tribes of Israel under King Jeroboam II. It was like the best of times and the worst of times then. The best of times, Israel was incredibly successful militarily and economically. They'd expanded their borders, almost uh, rivaling the expansion that they had under King Solomon. But Jonah, being a prophet in northern Israel, knew that the people had never been more uh, bad off spiritually. They they were thoroughgoing idolaters. And uh, even he, he realized that sooner or later those bills were going to come due. He was also smart enough to realize that to the north of Israel, the Assyrian Empire was picking up steam and gaining strength, that they would be uh, probably the uh, uh, tool of justice that God was going to use to bring about judgment on Israel. And so he was displeased and he became angry and he prayed to the Lord. Ah, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. Remember how he went down to Joppa? I love the city of Joppa. It's beautiful, though, right there on the seacoast. Took out a boat, uh, Tarshish, probably a site in modern Spain, tried to go as far away from God as he possibly could. You know the rest of the story. Uh, He said, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. So Jonah wasn't surprised by this. As a matter of fact, Jonah looked at that as the worst case scenario that, uh, you know, he was going to just go through and do the minimum. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. 
Well, the people responded in such a way that they were even putting sackcloth on the cows to show God how sorry they were. For who knows if God may have mercy on us? Yeah. Where did that desire even come from? And, and when you see that, you realize that God did a miracle. God turned these people's hearts around. Uh, it's only the Lord that can cause uh, these thoroughgoing paganistic individuals who were pretty proud of themselves and their power to turn around and put their faith and their trust in God. So, you know, here we see God being completely true to his attributes, true to what he said in his word he would do and wouldn't do. Uh, Jonah's ministry has been called the world's greatest revival with the world's worst evangelist because he didn't want to see him turn. He said, all right, tell me to say, get 40 days and then it'll be overthrown. All right, get 40 days and then it'll be overthrown. And God still honored his word. So, there you go. All right. Now, um, there's no getting around it. Got a question from Nina. Uh, she wants to know about the incident that took place in Genesis chapter 38 regarding the sin of Onan. Uh, I'll take care of this. Uh, first of all, before we go to Genesis 38, I want to first note uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verses 2 through 3. Uh, this is regarding verse 1, the genealogy, the family history of Jesus the Christ, right? So a very important individual was born through this family line. Now pay attention. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah in particular. Now the next verse says Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's an important name in this whole incident. Now, a, ra a radically important name because women, generally speaking, weren't mentioned in genealogies. And yet in Matthew's yeah. Stuart, Jewish yeah. audience, by the way, we have not one but three, mention of Ruth and also of Bathsheba, right. the wife of David. But yeah. you get the point. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah an interesting uh, uh, group. But go ahead. Yeah. So with that said, remember, the birth of Jesus Christ was to follow a specific family line to keep the promise made to Abraham. Abraham to Jacob, Jacob to Judah, and Judah to Tamar, or rather through Tamar. Twins were to born. To King David. Yeah. yeah. And twins were born by Tamar, but note, that was a part of this biological chain. The God, uh, the system that rather God put in place to bring babies into this world, including the one that would make sure that all of us were not going to hell. Note the stakes. Now, uh, Genesis 38, just to summarize, because this is going to get awkward fast, is uh, a count Hide of... Hide the children! <laughs> no, I, I, oh, we're not kidding. This is uh, not for younger audiences. Um, honest history with the Bible, Judah was not a good person. There's no. no way of mincing this. Yeah. But when it comes to at this point in his life, uh, he was active with prostitutes and his children obviously had learned from their old man because their own uh, pursuit of physical relationships and sexual intimacy obviously reflected poorly. When it was time for his oldest son, uh, Ur, I believe his name yes. was, was yeah. going to get married, he gave uh, him the wife Tamar. Now Tamar, you remember that name, she's the one who's going to give birth, but it doesn't mention Ur, it mentions Judah. Why? Well, because it mentions in Genesis 38 that God struck him dead. Now the reason why, we aren't told. That's scary because his next brother in line, following this custom that was later known as the Leverite Law, if you want to ask about it, go ahead. Uh, basically, the goal was for a family name to endure. You needed to have the family farm. You ain't no kind of man unless you got land, right? <laughs> the name was tied to <laughs> yeah. the land. So if you had kids, 
great. But if you died before you had any kids, it was the younger brother's responsibility, which is why they were heavily invested in the kind of guys their, their brothers were dating, yeah. to marry and then uh, have a child named after their older brother to carry on the family line. Now, note that point for the historical context. Er... Uh, apparently was struck dead by God for doing something weird, but we aren't told why. The next brother in line, Onan, was given the reason, and it was, quite frankly, R-rated. This is the passage, and I'll read it so that we understand exactly what the sin was according to the text, then we'll further contextualize it. So, verse 8 of Genesis 38. Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. Note the Leverite law. But, verse law 9. Law of brother-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. What did I say? Yeah. No, I just, you said Leverite. I just said it's law of brother-in-law. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, verse 9. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. So there's a loss of status on this part. And it came to pass when he went to his brother's wife, this is referring to sexual interaction, that he emitted on the ground, lest he give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Now, the rest of the story is even more graphic. I'll let you ask if you want to dig that hole even deeper. But we're not shying away from it. We're just not going to get more coarse than we yeah, have to. Yeah, parenthesis, C.S. Lewis' famous line, if you're not ready for books written for adults, don't read them. This is definitely adult material. But speaking of adult material, I'll use the term. It's generally referred to as coitus interruptus, and they would say that this is what's being condemned in the Bible. And others would take a step further and say this is a uh, death penalty towards any form of birth control, that you, in the act that would result in impregnation, were to interfere with that in any way because of the sin of Onan, that is also sinful. But that wasn't the sin of Onan. No, the sin of Onan is explained in the text. He didn't want to produce an heir. Now, what was the heir, and why was God so invested in the production of this child? Not just because God loves all the little children of the world, but this child would literally be the savior of the world down the line. If Onan was going to be an obstacle between the birth of the Messiah, God would deal with him personally. That's what his sin was. In exchange for status, he wanted to essentially... I won't even get more coarse than I already have been. The point being made is this. When he was preventing Tamar from getting pregnant, he was making himself an obstacle to the birth of the Messiah. People who would um, impose on the text to eisegete the passage and say this is a prohibition against birth control have a lot more to prove than just that passage. It's not in the text. Right, right. So you ask you know, me now, but <laughs> it, uh, it really does come down to that idea of uh, raising up an heir for your departed brother. Yeah. And 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 the significance of this was even when Onan and Ur had defaulted, God still, and you can read all of the the material, uh, used uh, even the incredibly sinful and uh, deceptive ways of man to work something together for good and continue that messianic line, no matter how much Satan wanted to destroy it. And uh, if you want to know, at least in passing, remember the genealogy says, by Judah, Tamar conceived those twins. Wasn't she her, his uh, daughter-in-law? Her, his daughter-in-law, yeah. that's right. That, that was true. Hey, here's <laughs> one we can do real quick. Uh, can you speak on the issue of Christians bearing arms in self-defense and protecting our family and how we should rightly look at that, this issue? Thank you. Well, 
great question. Uh, how should we look at it? We should always look at it in a biblical sense. There's a couple of scriptures that you really have to keep in mind uh, to have a thoroughly biblical understanding of this. One of them is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, where we are told, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than a non-believer. Uh, the word provide there is uh, a word in the original language. It's really interesting. It carries the idea of forethought. That is preparing for and, uh, and doing what is necessary in a very practical and a very thoughtful way as far as providing for the safety and security and future provision for your family. So not just food, but you're mentioning safety. Now, yeah. How would that be done? So, you know, when someone takes a look at their life situation and they realize that as uh, the man of the house, God has called an individual to be the one who provides that kind of protection. Well, then you've got to think through these particular issues. Uh, you know, you've got to ask yourself this question. Okay, in uh, the worst case scenario, if someone broke into my house and was threatening my family, how would I respond to that? Would I respond to that with lethal force? if that person was menacing my family? Or would I do something less than lethal, say have a baseball bat or, or a taser or something along that line? That's the idea of forethought there. If someone is going to, say, keep a firearm in the house, it would also dovetail with the idea of uh, not just having a firearm going down there and you know buying one at uh, you know the uh, the pawn shop, but uh, having the forethought to say, all right, if I'm having this firearm in the house to protect my family, then I need to be properly instructed in how to use that firearm in that particular set of circumstances. I'm not just going to wing it and say, well, I got a gun and I'll just aim it in that general direction and see what happens. That is a recipe for disaster. Your kids also need to understand that that is a tool with serious consequences if misused. And it's always, always, always a good thing if the wife in the home as well knows how to use those things properly. So if you're going to have a gun in your house, A, you should probably have the forethought uh, to decide, okay, I have prayed about this, and in light of where I live or in light of current events, uh, there could very well be a situation where evil needs to be resisted in a physical sense. It's not going to be enough just to call the police and wait 20 minutes or however long it takes them to get there. You may have to step in and do that. And if that is your conviction, you know, and you're not going to say, okay, I just want to have the wherewithal, uh, you know, whether it's taking self-defense classes, whether it's having a taser, whether it's something that is less than lethal. If you say, no, you know, the way people are these days, I need to have a gun in the house. One of the things I can tell you uh, that uh, any kind of uh, firearms instruction is going to tell you as well is uh, before you point a gun at somebody, you better be ready to fire it. You know, you can't just say, well, I'm going to do this just to sort of ward them off. And, you know, no, uh, you need to have that proper instruction that goes with all of that. And that's something that you've got to pray about and line up in your own relationship uh, with the Lord. As far as self-defense is concerned, we also have to be very careful in that the Bible does speak about the idea of defending ourselves and even our property. But we have to be careful that the opposition to evil is commensurate with the evil presented 
And this is what we mean by this. In the book of Exodus chapter 22, uh, we are told, If a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, that defender is guilty of bloodshed. Now notice it doesn't say necessarily murder, but it does talk about manslaughter here. Uh, if someone breaks in under the cover of darkness, why would they be breaking in under the cover of darkness? Probably because they value your property more than you. Yeah, and they're trying to get an advantage over you. They mean you harm. It is obviously a malicious act. Uh, then, you know, you need to do whatever you need to do to resist that. And if it does end up taking the life of the intruder, well, you won't be found guilty, according to God's law, of manslaughter in this set of circumstances. The cities it, of refuge were built for that purpose. But if it happens after sunrise where you kind of catch the guy right there and, you know, trying to help himself to your stuff or threatening your family. And the response to this is uncommensurate with the idea of just driving this person off or making sure that your family is safe. Well, then that's a completely different story. No one should be too quick to use deadly force against another, even someone who means to do harm. If someone was set upon by a thief in the middle of the night, in the confusion of the moment, the would-be thief was killed. The law didn't charge in the homeowner with murder or even manslaughter. But if the thief was caught in the house during the day when the homeowner was unlikely to be awoken from sleep, the law forbade killing the thief. He was just to be resisted and then dealt with according to the laws of the land. The law said homeowners shouldn't be quick to kill or attack thieves in their homes. Now, again, both of these situations, in the dark and after sunrise, could be accurately characterized as what? Self-defense, right? But deadly force was only expected to be used as a last force only in the event of a panic surprise attack scenario where the homeowner was likely to be confused and disoriented. So, you know, again, in the nighttime scenario, law gave the homeowner the benefit of the doubt uh, in that set of circumstance uh, that he would not intentionally use lethal force against a thief. In the case of self-defense against a thief, a godly person was expected to try to restrain the assailant rather than immediately resort to killing him. And that's why Proverbs also make the observation, dwell with your neighbor in peace, for he exists for your safety yeah, sake. Yeah, he call another safety people. sake, sure. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, I know it's a uh, very controversial issue, and there are some Christians who will just say, well, we're to be completely pacifistic uh, in terms of our approach. They would say, if someone slaps you on one cheek, uh, turn the other. Well, that passage we could talk about the idea of it being a personal offense rather than an assault but uh, the other part of that passage doesn't say if someone comes after your family let them because you're so godly you know maybe god will strike them with a lightning bolt you know it doesn't say that and, and if i you know because i'm so godly look on where say a situation came on where someone broke in and was you know, physically threatening my wife and just say, well, you know, I'm such a godly guy. I'm just going to sit here and let it happen. Uh, can I get you something to drink while you're, you know, menacing my family? That is the worst kind of Christ denying ungodliness. Uh, we should be willing to lay down our lives for one another. Uh, and uh, we need to resist evil. God says that's why he put government in place in the book of uh, Romans chapter 13. Uh, and uh, the uh, government does not bear the sword in vain. God does not uh, say categorically 
You should not resist evil. In fact, we should resist evil whenever we can. And we shouldn't love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And I think those passages coming together can give us some uh, GPS headings as far as this controversial issue goes. Anything you'd add to that? Well, and just to double down on the point, Christ-likeness, right? Obviously, Jesus didn't need to wield a firearm, let alone a sword. But he did demonstrate power in defense of those that he cared about. When he was being arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, people oftentimes overlook this. But I personally think it's hilarious. I wish we had more time to go into it. But in John chapter 18, when Jesus was arrested, there's an emphasis not only in the parallel passages where it quotes, of those that you entrusted to me, I have lost none. When he tells the band of marauders, the temple guard, who are coming to arrest Jesus and says, you have come to me as a thief against a thief or a robber. We spoke in public. Why are you doing this? But he says, let these go their way. Now, in the interaction, John draws special attention to this. When they said, well, who are you lurking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. The he is in italics because it's not in the original sense. Yeah. It was, um, it's literally, like, I am that I am. Yeah, yeah. he announces yeah. the covenant name of God. And then it says they all drew back down and fell on their face. So literally just imagine a repulse where they got slammed down on their face as a crowd. And then... With the kind of snark that I admire so much in my Lord, he then asked them again, whom are you seeking? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth, while looking up at him from the ground and not sure how they got there. And he says, I have already told you I am he. Now, and it's like, oh boy, here it comes again. Now let these go their way. He used every power at his disposal to make sure the ones that were entrusted to him were safe. And I think that settles the argument as well. If you say, well, it says swords, not guns. That is a completely ridiculous overcharacterization. Yeah. If you're going to say, well, any weapons of any kind, it's against Christ's likeness. We can talk about in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus allowed provisions for them to use the means of self-defense available to them technologically. And that is a broad term, not an exclusive term. It's not like we Christians should carry swords only. That is, again, a very politically manipulative statement. Yeah. That's where we would end this. Yeah, and uh, boy, I think this is appropriate. I'll throw this out to you, Sean. Yari asked, what does patience look like in the life of a believer? He's been waiting patiently for that answer. Well, I think you just demonstrated it. Thank you for the time you were able to spend on the broadcast. (laughs) Well, uh, once again, patience is a fruit of the spirit, Yari. It literally means uh, long-suffering. It can be translated that way in some translations of the Bible. But the word upomene literally means to endure under. In other words, to be in a situation that's not necessarily a, a positive one, but to be in a place where I say, well, okay, God has put me in this place. I am not going to try to get out of it uh, in, in some taking matters in my own hands kind of a way. I'm going to ask you, Lord, to give me the power of your Holy Spirit to continue to do what is right in spite of adverse circumstances. That's probably the best definition I can give. God bless you. We'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.